Radio Derb is on the air. That was Haydn's Derbyshire March number no. 2 in a big band version. And this is your vibrantly genial host, John Derbyshire, bringing you news of the hour. Or, at any rate, of the week. This week was heavy on political news. On Tuesday, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy launched an impeachment inquiry by the House of Representatives into the Biden families selling their political influence to foreign business interests for cold cash. Then, two days later, on Thursday, the Office of Special Counsel David Weiss announced the indictment of Hunter Biden for lies he told on federal forms when buying a handgun five years ago. Impeachment, indictment. Do these events herald an improvement in our ability to conduct rational politics or a further impairment? There is no impediment to me offering you my opinion, and I need no special inducement to do so. Although what follows may be just a first instalment. Kevin McCarthy's intention to impeach President Biden for corruption strikes me as pointless. His party has a majority of four in the House. In the Senate, they're in a minority, 49 to 51. So there are two hurdles to be jumped for anything effective to happen. I mean, for Biden to be impeached and convicted. One, get the full House to vote impeachment. And then, two, get all the Senate Republicans to vote for conviction, plus two or more Democratic senators. The first hurdle there is jumpable. The second is not. And what is a House impeachment inquiry going to inquire about that isn't already being inquired about by A. Representative James Comer's Oversight Committee and B. Representative Jim Jordan's Judiciary Committee? So I think this comes under the heading gesture politics. Even if you allow that the Biden family is a nest of crooks, which I certainly do allow, there are better things to impeach the president for. Most obviously, and of much greater benefit to the national welfare, he could be impeached for violating his oath of office 
by failing to ensure that the people's laws on immigration and settlement are faithfully executed. That's why you're called Chief Executive, Joe. Peter Brimmeler made the case for that on Wednesday. The boss also pointed out the probable reason why Kevin McCarthy prefers a charge of corruption rather than one of treason on our nation's borders. McCarthy is a rhino, a uni-party shill, taking his instructions from the cheap labour lobbies who still own most of the congressional GOP. In last week's podcast, under the inspiration of political scientist Francis Fukuyama, I commented on the accelerating failure of Congress to do the job assigned to it by our Constitution. Congress has always been an arena for political games, of course, but it has serious constitutional obligations to fulfil, obligations that should, at least some of the time, and preferably most of the time, put the national interest ahead of petty political triumphs. One index of this accelerating congressional failure has been presidential impeachments. There have been four in our nation's history. Of Andrew Johnson in 1868, Bill Clinton in 1998, Donald Trump in 2020, and Donald Trump again in 2021. The gaps between those presidential impeachments were, in years, 130, 22, and 1. Accelerating? Oh, yeah. If the Congress critters have their way... Presidential impeachment will soon be a weekly event. If the impeachment inquiry is fake, the indictment of Hunter Biden is even faker. The bringer of this indictment is special counsel David Weiss, a glove puppet for People's Commissar Merrick Garland. As my Friday New York Post points out under the memorable headline Junkie Liar Charged with Three Felonies Quote That's one of about a dozen crimes that Hunter Biden's committed and ironically that's the one crime that he committed that you cannot tie Joe Biden to End quote I should note that, number one, the Post was quoting House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer there, and, number two, that the headline I gave you there is from the print edition of the newspaper, which is targeted at New Yorkers. The online headline, aimed at a wider readership, is more genteel. Quote, Hunter Biden indicted over lies about drug addiction while buying a gun. Let me tell yous, these New York journalists know their business.
The Post has another good quote on this from Representative Matt Gates of Florida. Quote, Getting Hunter on the gun charge is like getting Jeffrey Dahmer on littering. End quote. So, bottom line on this impeachment and this indictment. Fake and fake. Fake, 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 fake. <laughs> I'm not that familiar with congressional jargon, but in the British House of Commons there is something called a three-line whip. Here's a definition from the online Cambridge Dictionary. Quote, In the UK, a three-line whip is an instruction given to members of Parliament by the leaders of their party telling them they must vote in the way that the party wants them to on a particular subject, end quote. One of the reactions to Kevin McCarthy's announcement of an impeachment inquiry came out of the White House Counsel's office Wednesday morning as a memo. It was actually headed Memo to editorial leadership at U.S. news media organisations. To this old parliamentary junkie, the memo looks very much like a three-line whip from the ruling class to their followers in the media. The sender's name on the memo is Ian Sams, special assistant to the president and Senior Advisor and Spokesman for White House Counsel's Office. The subject line reads as follows, quote, Re. It's time for the media to do more to scrutinise House Republicans' demonstrably false claims that they're basing impeachment stunt on. End quote. I hope someone in the White House has wrapped Ian Sam's knuckles with a ruler for having ended a sentence with a preposition, something Radio Derb would never be guilty of. That aside, you have to marvel at the audacity of this memo. Although Ian Sam's directed it to media bosses, he made no effort to keep it private. He is telling the whole world that he expects the media to tow the White House line. To be sure that the media know exactly what the White House line is, the two-page memo comes with a 14-page appendix that, quote, comprehensively addresses the seven key lies House Republicans are suggesting they are basing an impeachment on. End quote. And the audacity of the memo comes with a garnish of surprise. Why did the White House think it necessary to issue this three-line whip? Haven't the mainstream news outlets, Washington Post, New York Times, CNN and MSNBC, haven't they been working hard enough this past three years 
to cover for Biden and his family? I don't see how they could have worked any harder. In parliamentary proceedings, a three-line whip generally goes out when party managers fear that some members of parliament may buck the party line on some important issue. Is the White House worried that they may be losing some portion of the regime media? I haven't seen any signs of that myself, but then I only read the progressive outlets when I have to. Or is there something else going on? Bear in mind that the fact of this memo having a White House address at the top doesn't necessarily mean that Joe Biden knows anything about it. Most likely he's oblivious to it. As best I can judge from the President's speech and behaviour, at this point on life's journey, Oblivion is Biden's middle name. Speaking about the deep state in last week's podcast, I limited myself to Francis Fukuyama's musings about what he calls principles and agents. The principles are elected politicians. The agents are the bureaucrats who are supposed to implement the principles' policies. A listener emailed in to chide me for not acknowledging that the deep state isn't just politicians and federal bureaucrats. It includes a lot of people employed outside the walls of government. Media people, educators, business folk hungry for government contracts. That is, of course, true. And by making this memo public, the White House managers are speaking to all of them. All these lesser power centres have their own small reservoirs of pride, though. To be told so blatantly and openly that they must toe the line, they must continue to declare Joe Biden is innocent of all charges, that will raise some hackles. Perhaps that's the intention. Perhaps this memo comes from a desire on the part of the deep state to stir up some anti-Biden activity in the regime media. Why? Because they want to get rid of Biden, that's why. They don't think he can win next year's election, and they fear that whoever does win it will be unfriendly to them. Obviously, the White House can't issue a memo saying, OK, maybe these charges against the president have some substance to them. They can, though, issue a shrill memo that will offend at least some of those employees at The Post and The Times and CNN and MSNBC. Ambitious young thrusters who like to think of themselves as investigative reporters asking bold questions. So, is it four-dimensional chess? I'm just speculating. This week has seen one big immigration story and several smaller ones. 
I mean, stories that are newsworthy, but not novel or sensational. Just more of the same old, same old. I'll give over this segment to the big story, and then follow it with a portmanteau segment for the lesser ones. The nearest we got to sensational this week was in the Mediterranean, precisely on the little Italian island of Lampedusa. Lampedusa is a tiny place, eight square miles, population six and a half thousand, way out in the sea, midway between Sicily and the North African coast. It looks beautiful in the pictures that I've been browsing on the internet. The island belongs to Italy, so an African who can get there somehow is then in the EU, in Europe, and he can avail himself of all the provisions in the European Convention of Human Rights and of the mighty armies of human rights lawyers who enforce those provisions. Naturally, lots of Africans have been heading to Lampedusa. That's been going on for a quarter century now. It was part of the big 2015-2016 surge into Europe that got so much publicity. What Steve Saylor calls Merkel's boner. I forget why. The nearest North African countries to Lampedusa are... Nearest, Tunisia. Next nearest, Libya. Demographically, both countries are overwhelmingly Middle Eastern white, having been ruled by Arabs and Turks for several centuries. So most of the boat people coming to Lampedusa these 20-odd years past have been of that same stock. Recently, things have changed, though most especially in Tunisia. Across the Sahara Desert to the south, the black African countries of the Sahel have been heading out ever further in the directions of overpopulation, underdevelopment and serious civic disorder. There's been a steady flow of migrants northwards, especially into Tunisia, which until recently had a healthy economy. The inflow of black Africans was okay for a while, but then the economy went into the tank, unemployment shot up, the president took emergency powers, and the blacks found themselves seriously unwelcome. Not least by the president, a chap named Syed, who told them they should go back across the Sahara to black Africa. The last few months, things have gotten very bad for the blacks in Tunisia. Quote from the Washington Post, June 30th. According to more than 25 Washington Post interviews with victims, aid groups and activists, Black Africans have been assaulted, robbed, spit on, raped, stabbed and dragged through the streets. Last month, a man from Benin was hacked to death by a group of young Tunisians. So, of course, the blacks are all heading to Europe, i.e. 
to Lampedusa. Tuesday this week, in some calm weather after a spell of rough seas, a flotilla of more than a hundred boats reached the island. By late Wednesday, over 7,000 people had arrived, more than doubling the island's population. To judge from the news pictures, practically all of the 7,000 are young men of military age. This is a big embarrassment for Italy's Prime Minister, Giorgia Meloni, who was elected to that office a year ago on a platform of curbing illegal immigration and who has been leading a combined EU effort to bribe Tunisia and other North African countries to curtail people smuggling. As I record here, the Italians are moving illegals from Lampedusa to Sicily and the Italian mainland as fast as they can, with a honcho from the United Nations Refugee Agency urging other European countries to help. Willingness on the part of European nations to do so is variable. Those nations of Eastern Europe that used to be Soviet satellites are the most resolute in policing and defending their borders, sometimes in defiance of EU edicts. At the other extreme is Britain, which shows neither the inclination nor the ability to defend her borders. Germany this week, perhaps trending in the East European direction, pulled out of a multinational programme to take illegals from frontline countries like Italy and Greece. In France, on the other hand, President Macron is mumbling about a vague new scheme to get all EU members helping to solve the crisis. In the meantime, he continues to do as little as he can to stop the flow from France to Britain across the English Channel. So, probably most of these Africans from Tunisia will end up in the UK after passing first through Italy and France. The overall picture here brings irresistibly to mind Jean Raspail's novel the Camp of the Saints, published 50 years ago this year and available for purchase from the vdare.com bookstore. Raspail drew a convincing picture of the incoming hordes, although he had them originating in India, not Africa. But the thing I remember most vividly from the book is the cowardice and helplessness of the Europeans. they utter inability to grasp what was happening or to resist it, as their lands, the lands of their ancestors, were overrun. Will there still be a place we can recognise as Europe another 50 years from now? Every time I read a story like this week's out of Lampedusa, my hope recedes a little further. I promised you a clutch of lesser stories on immigration. Here they are. 
I've been telling you for weeks about the dire effects of our open border policy on New York City and Chicago. Well, here's a story from Massachusetts. This is from a September 5th article by John Thompson, co-chair of the Massachusetts Coalition for Immigration Reform. Title of the article? Massachusetts collapsing under weight of unbridled illegal immigration. Sample quote. As illegal immigration surged between 1990 and 2007, it remained modest in Massachusetts. When the housing bubble burst in 2007, illegal workers began leaving states with high concentrations, like California, Florida and Arizona, and moving to states like Massachusetts, where the unlawful resident population, which was fewer than 100,000 in 2007, is now over 300,000 some 5% of the state's population. End quote. Thompson gives an account of the consequences with links to supporting data. Direct cash social benefits to illegals? Check. He estimates $7,400 annually per illegal. Driver's licenses and in-state tuition for illegals? Check. Decline in labor force quality? Check. Quote, about 30% of unlawful migrants have less than a high school education, compared to 10% of all people in the state. End quote. Outflow of the productive workforce? Check. Quote, the erosion of the tax base will hamper the state's ability to modernize its infrastructure. End quote. Impact on wages of lower paid Americans? Check. Quote, in Massachusetts, the real wages of the lowest paid 20% of workers have fallen by more than in any other state during the period of high immigration. End quote. On the upside, Massachusetts is one of the nine states that enforce E-Verify for both public and private employees. Thompson urges other states to do the same. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy told us last Friday that he would deport the children of illegal aliens with their families, even if the kids had acquired U.S. citizenship by being born here. Both Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis have said they will end birthright citizenship if elected. DeSantis told a news conference back in June that birthright citizenship for illegals is, quote, inconsistent with the original understanding of the 14th Amendment, end quote. I can't find anything that Trump or DeSantis has said about children of illegals 
already in possession of citizenship when the new rule, the Trump-DeSantis rule, takes effect. To that degree, Ramaswamy is ahead of them. He says those children will be deported along with their parents. Okay, but will they keep their citizenship? How retroactive will the new ruling be? What about an adult person who acquired birthright citizenship via illegal alien parents, but whose parents have since become legal citizens somehow? Hey, I was an illegal alien here from 1972 to 1978. What if I had engendered a child? Would that person, now around 50 years old, would he lose his citizenship? What if one parent's illegal and the other one isn't? Will it be different if they're married or not married? Oh, there's a lot of stuff to be worked out here. I'm against birthright citizenship for children of illegals. I think it's a dumb idea. Most nations agree with me. Outside the Americas, almost none offer it. In Europe, none at all. In Africa, just two countries. Not China, not Japan, not Australia or New Zealand. Outside the Americas, birthright citizenship is considered really eccentric. I just want to know the fine details. Here's something about Russian illegals. Since the war broke out a year and a half ago, there's been a big spike in numbers of Russians with cases in New York State's immigration court. A lot of them are avoiding conscription, apparently unaware that fear of conscription is not grounds for asylum in the USA. And here's some news from the Arizona border. Numbers crossing over in the Tucson sector are now exceeding Border Patrol's detention capacity. In a single 24-hour period this week, the CBP saw over 2,000 illegal crossings. So what happens to the illegals when there's no detention space? They get released with a notice to appear. That's what happens. Welcome to America. The news story I'm getting this from at the Fox News website, says that in this Tucson sector, quote, large numbers of single adult men from Africa have been crossing illegally, including many from Senegal, end quote. What is it about Senegal? It's a small and inconsequential country in West Africa, I wouldn't be surprised to see Nigeria or Ghana or Cameroon or Mauritania showing up a lot, but why Senegal? I guess things are really rough there. Well, well, Senegal's loss will be the USA's gain, I'm sure. And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. 
The annual commemoration of the 9-11 attacks came and went. I of course mean no disrespect to the memory of those who suffered and died that dreadful day, but the commemorations seemed a bit lacklustre, more so every year. Recollections fade with the passing of time, of course. That aside, though, I think there's a widespread disillusion among us over our national reaction to that event. A sense of something on a scale with embarrassment at one end, shame at the other. My preference at the time was for relentless, low-profile efforts to find and punish everyone responsible. As I said at the time, quote, small teams of inconceivably brave men and women working in strange places unknown and unacknowledged, end quote. What we got instead was huge missionary wars. Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, with, of course, entirely negative results. After 20 years stumbling around in Afghanistan, we handed the place back to the people who had been running it on 9-11, along with several billion dollars worth of our best military hardware. Iraq became a puppet state of Iran. Libya turned into a junkyard of endless tribal conflict. Syria? I forget, but I'm not aware of us having done anything creditable there. Yes, cause for embarrassment, at least. And guys who actually planned and supported the attacks have still, after 22 years, have still not been brought to trial. There they lounge at Guantanamo Bay, while civilian and military lawyers argue and wrangle. Embarrassment? No. Shame is what's appropriate. National shame. Item. The case that Ed West has made, the case that Britain is now just a cultural outpost of the USA, keeps getting reaffirmed. Here's the front page of the London Daily Mirror, September 14th. Huge main headline... Year of the Shoplifter, with a picture of two people shoplifting at a London clothing store. Subheading 1. Thefts soar, but where are prosecutions? Subheading 2. We demand law change to stop epidemic. If Uncle Sam is having an epidemic of out-of-control shoplifting, the Brits must have one too. As a footnote here, I observe that the people in that cover picture are both white. It's possible that the two shoplifters actually were white. It's also possible, though, that they were black and the picture was doctored. 
British media outlets now do this in the name of equity. Last month, the BBC was caught in the act. A story in March 2022 about some local elections was illustrated with a black hand feeding a ballot into a ballot box. Someone noticed that an identical picture had been used five years ago for an election story. Identical except that the hand in the original picture was white. Do our media engage in this kind of chicanery? Surely not. Item. Also from Shakespeare's Islands. The London Daily Telegraph reported September 3rd that the Church of England is dying on its feet. Attendance at services has been declining for at least 30 years, from over a million in 1995 to just half a million today. This is, of course, a religious instance of go woke, go broke. The Anglican clergy have succumbed to the social justice gospel, while their congregants have remained mostly conservative, middle class and white. To me, it's a mild peripheral loss. The schools I attended from ages 5 to 18 all had a daily service, a hymn, a Bible reading and prayers. I know my Bible decently well. I can sing my way through hymns ancient and modern, and I am fairly well acquainted with the Anglican liturgy. I'm happy attending a different church now, but I can't help missing the flavour of Anglicanism. The late Roger Scruton caught that flavour nicely in a book he wrote with the title Our Church, A Personal History of the Church of England. I reviewed that book for the American Spectator back in 2013. The review is archived at my personal website. You're welcome. Item. Back in the USA, Mitt Romney has announced that he won't be running for re-election to the Senate in 2024. Quote from his announcement. At the end of another term, I would be in my mid-80s. Frankly, it's time for a new generation of leaders. They're the ones that need to make the decisions that will shape the world they will be living in. End quote. I know, I know, Romney's not on our side. I have scoffed at him as a quote, milk toast gentry Republican. End quote. He's a never-Trumper. He voted twice to impeach. When I tackled him on immigration once at a national review show-and-tell before the 2012 election, it turned out he had never given the subject a moment's thought. I'll have to read up on that, he said lamely, or something along those lines. 
All that said, though, he's a decent man. A law-abiding family man. A patriot by his own lights, who seems to have gotten through 25 years in public life without doing anything to be ashamed of. Good luck, Mitt. I'm sorry I cornered you on a subject you knew nothing about. Enjoy retirement in, I guess, Utah. That's all, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for your time and attention. Today, I notice, is the first day of Hispanic Heritage Month. So get into the spirit of the thing and head down to Taco Bell, first chance you get. Buen provecho! For sign-off, something a bit eccentric. Yes, I lapse into eccentricity now and then. Forgive me. This follows a small social gathering a few days ago when the question went round the table, What's your favourite movie ending? That's one of those questions that, if you asked me on a different day, I'd probably give you a different answer. It happened that on this day I had just read a review of David Kynaston's latest book in his series about Britain since World War II. This book covers the early 1960s, so memories of those years were at the front of my mind. One particularly vivid memory was of the 1962 movie Fedra, which ends with Anthony Perkins deliberately driving much too fast along the narrow coastal road of some Greek island after being thrown out by his billionaire father for doing the naughty with his stepmother. Wikipedia tells me that Fedra was, quote, a hit in Europe, but a box office failure in the USA. Sure enough, None of my dinner table companions had heard of it, not even those who were alive and sentient in 1962. Late teen Brits of my generation, though, couldn't get enough of watching Anthony Perkins chewing the scenery, and this was one of the most memorable examples. The movie Phaedra was based on a play by Euripides. I only mention this because it gives me the opportunity to air the ancient schoolboy joke about the guy who shows up at a Greek tailor's shop carrying a pair of trousers. Tailor. Euripides? Customer. Yes. Eumenides? There will be more from Radio Derb next week. Go, girl, go! That's my girl. You do what I say, don't you? You want a little music? Sure you do. A little banishment music, Professor? Hey, girl, 
Nothing but the best for us. Escorted out by Bach. Oh, John Sebastian in person. Some business in Greece. I had a father to kill, didn't we, Fedra? Fedra! 